0: Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 21. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And they were reclining at the table uh, and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, after, uh, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Lord, help us today as we enter in now to some, some intimate conversation, some powerful demonstration, and Lord, some, uh, some needed guidance from your word about who you are and about how you relate to us, but also about what you have done for us in going to the cross taking upon yourself the sin of mankind and bearing the wrath of God. And Lord, through that, we who have come to know you as our personal Savior, we have righteousness. We are clothed with your righteousness. And Lord, today, may we bask in that, but at the same time understand the road and the path, Lord, that led to that, and help us, Lord, to to grasp the, the beauty of your love for us and the the, the, the uh, determination of, uh, of your son to, to continue on down the path of going to that cross. Uh, strengthen us today. Give us wisdom, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, there's a man by the name of Albert Schweitzer years ago who wrote a book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And he attempts... To give perspective to the presence of this historical Jesus in the pages of God's Word. And here's what he says, and I want you to listen to it carefully. He says, There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge of that, he is the coming Son of Man lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls Onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably or once immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as a spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. Now I just want to give you some perspective and just think through a little bit about what he's saying. In Schweitzer's view, Jesus had overplayed his hand and had capitulated to the grinding wheels of history. His body hangs on a cross, sure enough, but the circumstances of history have caused the plans of Jesus to unravel. And according to Schweitzer, he is certainly one to respect and admire, but even he he is the victim of history, his best laid plans have come to an end. I ask you, friends, is that true? I think the answer to that question is no, I mean, does, does the best or did the best laid plans of Jesus and the Godhead come to a crashing end with Jesus hanging in defeat on a cross? No, was Jesus simply a victim of the circumstances of history? No, was he just another revolutionary who had his season of fame only to disappear into irre- irrelevance? The answer again is no. Now, this is what many people think. This is what many think about the historical Jesus, although recognize that he was a real person at a real time. But they won't put much stock in the spiritual implications of what Jesus did. They would say he was a revolutionary who failed. Oh, he got a gathering, but he ultimately was sucked in to the wheels of history. But that is not what Mark thinks. That is not what the Gospels tell us. This is not the Jesus that Mark is bearing witness to. This is not the attitude of Christ himself. And what Mark wants us to see very, very clearly as we begin this passion story is that Jesus is in complete control of everything that is driving this text. This is not just a story that is taking shape, where you can kind of click your way with a variety of choices. This is something far deeper and greater that's going on. This is evidence that God's providence over the affairs of the world is taking place. Now some, who would be identified as deists, and many of our forefathers of this country were deists, they say that God created the universe, but then took a backseat and allowed his creation to operate like a machine. So they would say, yes, God created the world. He's the one that, 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 you know, that, that brought things into existence, but He stepped back. He is distant. He is detached. He's uninvolved. Others who will call them fatalists, say that man's actions are simply a result of fate. There's no order, there's no kind of guiding force, you are just left to yourself. The planets may have aligned, horoscopes might help you get through the day, but man has no choice and God is irrelevant. But friends, that is not what we find when we open the pages of scripture, is it? We find something more specific going on, something with, with meat and something that is, that is powerful. We find in the scriptures that they assert that the Godhead is actively and intimately involved in his creation, bringing about his will through the affairs of man and history. And so I like what Louis Burkhoff says about this word providence. He says providence is that continued exercise of the divine energy, or the power of God is what he's saying, whereby the creator preserves all his creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. So providence has the idea of both control and And movement in creation and the affairs of this world. In other words, God is in control and he is moving things according to his plan. And the classic biblical example of that is the story of the life of Joseph. You guys remember the story of Joseph. He was the the favorite son of Jacob, and he was given the coat of many colors, and and God had gifted him with this ability to interpret dreams. And so he interpreted a dream, and his brothers didn't like it. His father didn't like it much. And the brothers eventually tricked their brother, and they, they left him as if he was dead, but they sold him into slavery. He ends up going to Egypt, and he becomes a A slave in the house of Potiphar who happens to be a a captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army. And while he's there, he is finding great success. His skills as a manager and as a leader over the household is evident. But he also drew the attention of Potiphar's wife. And she sought to seduce him. And in the process of that, while she's trying to seduce him, he is a man of integrity. He says, no, I cannot do that. And he runs away. In his running, though, she grabs a piece of his garment. And then she falsely accuses him of seducing her. And, of course, as a result, he's thrown in jail. You say, wow, that's an awful thing to have happen in your life. First of all, to be the, the favorite son out of no fault of your own. Secondly, to be thrown in into this pit by your brothers, to be sold into slavery, that's bad. And then finally, when you start doing well in that slave capacity, and you're you're this head of the of the home as far as the affairs are concerned, you are falsely accused, and now you're in jail, and you're in jail for years, and yet because of this ability to to, to interpret dreams, God orchestrates something, and, and, the, and Pharaoh has these, these dreams that are troubling him, and, and they hear about Daniel, and he, he, he's brought before the Pharaoh, and, and he interprets the dreams, and as a result, Pharaoh sees in him a, a man of knowledge and gives him the, the, this high place in Egypt. I think it's like the third uh, position of power in Egypt, and he oversees then this coming famine and we find that the closing words here, when, when Joseph's brothers finally come to Egypt and they are coming desperate because they're hungry, because there's been this famine. And they're coming and they have no idea that Joseph is there. And when they come and they're, they put themselves before him, at the end of the story, they come and, and, and they, they, they are humble before Joseph. And here's what he says. This is verse 19 and 20 of Genesis 50. He says, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. Now think about that. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is provident over the affairs of man. And friends, this is helpful for us even as we begin begin our text today, because what's screaming from this passage is this. The events of the Passion are not happening to Jesus as if he is the victim of circumstances. No, these things are happening because of Jesus. He is in complete control and is actively working his divine plan. And that's going to unfold for us as we walk through this text today. So let's begin by looking at his providence over the Passover preparations. Now according to Deuteronomy 16, 5 and 6, Passover is supposed to be celebrated only within Jerusalem. And of course, if you read the text, you see where Jesus and the disciples are. They're staying in Bethany, outside of Jerusalem. And so they need to find a place in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. Maybe you haven't thought through as to why did they go and find the upper room and all that kind of stuff. Why did they just stay at Bethany and have it? Because there was a requirement to go into Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover meal there. And so that's why we find the disciples saying... Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's a legitimate question. It's a question of concern. Passover is coming. There isn't much time left. There are things that need to to be done. You have to be reminded how many people were in Jerusalem at that time. They're coming to Jerusalem for Passover, to celebrate Passover in the city. And so there's all this cooperation going on. There's all this buying and selling of goods in particular for the celebration of Passover. There has to be a ministry of hospitality because people have to open up their homes or rooms in their homes for all these pilgrims coming into the city. There is a oneness about that, which I think is good. And so they're saying, where are we going to go to? What are the plans We'll need to not only find a place, but we have to prepare for Passover. So it's kind of like when your family gets together for Thanksgiving. You know how it goes. This is about the time of the year. Maybe you've figured it out already, but, you know, it's like someone gets on the phone and says, or eat and where are we going to celebrate Thanksgiving this year? Right? Anyone have that email go out, right? And you figure it out. All right. Now you figured out where it's going to be. Now it's like, all right, what are we going to serve? Okay, fine. And you figure out what you're going to serve. Well, obviously, you know, for many of you, it's going to be turkey. For those of you who like turkey, for others of you, it's going to be spam because you can't think of anything else, Um, ham, whatever it might be. But you have all these different things, and different families bring kind of cultural things to the the table. But you also have to clean the house and get it all ready and prepared for people to come. And so there's all sorts of activity that takes place in preparation for Thanksgiving. So just imagine the Passover meal. I mean, it's it's not just like, you know, Jesus went and just spoke it, and all, all of a sudden, the Passover meal was there. That's not how he was functioning. This is, this is functioning within his humanity and working with people. And so just think through that. So the, the Passover meal, there was a lot that needed to be done. Preparations were necessary, and making those preparations was important here. And making sure that the home was empty of any. Yeasts, so that's one of the things that had to happen. You had to go through the whole, the whole house and the whole room to make sure there wasn't any yeast there. Taking the spotless lamb to be slaughtered. You think that standing in line for Santa Claus at Christmas takes a long time? Can you imagine all the people that were taking their spotless lambs to be slaughtered by the priest in preparation for Passover? And who wants to volunteer for that task? Can you imagine just all the people doing the same thing? buying all the ingredients, preparing the food, cooking the food, while thousands of others are doing the same thing? It's no small question, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover, is it? It's actually a very weighty question because there's a lot of activity. There's a lot that needs to be done. But not only we see Jesus uh, you know, taking care of that, just notice the the providence that's going on here. Jesus has everything planned and under control. There is this already predetermined procedure it's 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 kind of a it's kind of like a, a mission impossible kind of a thing going on here, right? Go into Jerusalem and you'll find a man carrying a glass jar you know Here we go, you know. Where's the guy with the glass jar? Now, what's interesting in the studies I made is one of the distinctions here is that it wasn't typically men who carried these jars of water. Did I say glass jar? should be jar of water, right? It, it was the ladies who did that. The men usually carried bags of water because they're bigger and they could carry more. So there's this kind of an unusual thing. But find that guy. I'm just getting Again, again some, you know, some kind of cloak and dagger thing. There'll be Mary, uh, a man carrying water. Follow him. Um, and, when, and when you get to the place and the master's there, you need to ask this particular question. You know, it's kind of like, you know, again, spy, like, you know, you know here, this, the code word is, master says, um, is the guest room ready uh, for my disciples? And again, we just, we just find these things kind of unfolding, that, that Jesus has already laid out what needs to take place. Now, I want us to think a little bit about this. Back in, in Mark chapter 11, um, we, we found something very similar going on. We found Jesus sending his disciples to go find a cult. And he gave, again, instructions. Go here and talk to this person. You'll find a cult there ready and prepared. Jesus is in the, the business, so to speak. Jesus is the one who is all about making sure that Preparations are made. And in both those texts, there's certainly an aspect of authority. Jesus is certainly fully in control of this. Now, one of the questions that we have to ask, is this purely supernatural? That Jesus knows these things and just says these things, and somehow there's been this divine kind of activity going on? Or had he physically, personally made arrangements and talking with these people and just making sure that it was going to take place? We're not told. Either way, what we see here is that Jesus is in complete control of the situation. And I would say, surprisingly, in ways that we we were amazed that it's already there, taken care of. Now, what's interesting is uh, if we we think through the Mark 11 passage, we find that Jesus prepared a cult suitable for a king. And here, we find... um, Jesus basically preparing a place or a room suitable for a king and his companions to celebrate this Passover meal. Now, of course, this place, this upper room would provide privacy, it would provide quietness for them. And Mark doesn't record it, but John's gospel does. There was quite a discourse that took place there. A lot of things were discussed. The ministry and the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believers was one of the main topics that was uh, on, uh, that was part of that conversation. But not only that, there were some specific promises that were given to the disciples, and there are promises that are also for us. And I want you just to kind of hear this particular one. I'm going to read from John 14, beginning at verse one, and just hear some of the similarities to what we're. We're looking at right now it says let not your heart be troubled believe in god believe also in me my uh, in my father's house are many rooms and if it were not so i would have told you that i go to prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you i come uh, i will come again and will take you to myself that where i am You may be also, and you know the way uh, to where I'm going. Now, did you catch that that, that, similar statement there, that he is one who prepares the way? I mean, he's not just doing it for a donkey. He's not just doing it for an upper room, but he's also doing it for the disciples. And that promise, it rings true for us. He has gone on ahead. He is preparing a place for us. So when we read this at a funeral service, it's not just pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is rooted in the character of God. This is rooted in the, the habit of Jesus who is about making sure that his will is being accomplished and that preparations are rightly being made to carry out that will. And you, my friend, as one of his children, are at the heart of his will. And so that preparation is just as much for you. So Jesus is in the business of preparation. But he is also in control of preparing that place for us. And so this this text is screaming at us that every one of those details of our lives, whatever those details are, whatever those random circumstances that seem random to us or to other people, that he cradles them in his hand. He knows what's going on, and he is working his will through all those details. Everything happens according to God's plan. Everything. Now, you might be tempted to question Jesus and say, everything? Everything? Is Jesus or is God really in control of everything? Pastor, are you saying that evil happens to us and God is in control of that? Well, let's allow the text to answer that question for us. It is clear that Jesus is in control of preparing the Passover meal, but we'll find now that he's also in control of the disciple who is in the process of betraying him. Now, Notice what we find here. It says, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, uh, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, we, we see how divine providence here engages with man's sinful rebellion. Mark has already given us a clue a few, pa- a few verses back that Judas had already made this pact with the religious leaders and that he was in process now of betraying Jesus. So he, we, we find then here this divine providence now engaging with, with this part of the story. And we find Jesus now having taken the role of the host uh, and the head of the family of these Jews, reclining at the table. Now, just a little side note, this reclining at the table is actually part of the Passover reenactment. It's part of of the, the package of the Passover. The meal celebrates Israel's freedom from Egypt. And hear this, only free people have the luxury of reclining at a table. So there's something about the rest, there's something about the reclining at the meal that is a reminder of God's past providence over his people and his past provision of a lamb who would deliver them, okay? Now, what's interesting, unlike the other Gospels, Mark records little about the actual meal. Certainly, the meal included bitter herbs and sauces and unleavened bread, Four cups of wine and the Passover lamb and all these details symbolize important features of Israel's experience in Egypt and God's greater act of deliverance. But Mark's concern is not so much with the meal, but to highlight the treachery of the one who was about to betray him. John's gospel quotes the psalmist. John 13, 18. He says, the one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Which refers to my bosom friend in whom I trusted of Psalm 41 verse 9. In other words, there's, there, there are these allusions and quotations now that are coming from the Old Testament. Revealing that there's an, there's an intimacy here about the one who was about to betray Jesus. Mark's... Words. One who is eating with me is simply, it's one of you. And I want you to notice three movements in this short little section here. Movement number one is the movement I'm calling panic. The sorrow of a fearful heart. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? Now, one of our natural questions, and I think this is a legitimate question, is, because if this was our situation, we would handle this considerably different, I think. You know, why doesn't Jesus pull Judas aside and talk to him privately? Why does he get him off into the corner and say something along the lines of, Judas, I'm disappointed in you. I expected more of you. You're a leader. I chose you to be one of the 12 disciples, and you've let me down, and you've let down the others. I mean, you can understand that. Or maybe even saying it in a bolder, harsher way. But that isn't what Jesus chooses to do, is it? Instead, Jesus puts his words in a a general way so that each of the disciples is asking the question, is it I? I? you remember the parable at the end of chapter 13? Go back there a little bit. Chapter 13. And read verses 35 through 37 with me. This is the end of the Olivet Discourse. And it kind of introduces for us the events of this Passion Week. He says, therefore, stay awake. And if you remember, this is one of the concerns. Are you going to stay awake? For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. These are all the different Times of the watch of the night. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Are the disciples going to stay awake? Well, these words of one of you is going to betray me just cause this this panic uh, in the hearts of the disciples and they're all concerned that maybe the one would be themselves. Does that mean that they don't have some kind of a strength of character or they, they're not honest about where they're at in their relationship with Jesus? No, I think there's a, there's a genuine question. Is there something that, that I am doing that, that, that maybe I haven't seen that needs to be corrected here? On one level, it does seem cruel to put them through all of that rather than simply confront Judas. But we need to remember that Jesus in that parable tells them that they would not be able to stay awake, they would fall away. And by the end of the night, go back to chapter, chapter 14 now and verse 50, notice it says there that they had all left him and fled. In fact, all the disciples had left Jesus and fled. And quite frankly, that's a pretty good backdrop to Jesus' interaction with Peter because Jesus is the one who, sorry, Judas... Getting my people mixed up here. Peter is not the one who flees. He's the one that stays, even though he's the one who's going to deny Jesus, right? So there's failure all around going on here. Now, if we're honest, there are times when the word of God is preached and we wrestle whether or not what is being said is really for us. What Pastor Rod or someone else is saying is good, but it isn't intended for me. It's for that other person, for someone else who struggles with that particular sense. But friends, we must always be willing to ask the question, is it me, Lord? Am I guilty here? Do I have some blind spots that that I can't see clearly? What are you wanting to show me, Lord? There's a humility that comes from those who love the Lord and want to follow him to say, Lord, show me if this is me. So there's something about this that is not only exposing Judas for who he is, but also preparing these disciples for their own sinfulness that is going to be found out this night. So there's this panic. Secondly, there is ignorance ignorance. Now when Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, and he also says here, and it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, get this, none of his disciples said, it's Judas. I never trusted him. I always saw those shifty eyes, and I remember when that day when he was doing such and such, and what none of that going on. They were completely ignorant that it could be judas they, they didn't know it, they didn't see it, and no one said it. Now, we know that Judas was probably pilfering from the, the money bags, but the disciples are completely unaware of it. So there was nothing in the character or the disposition of Judas that is seen or observed or that he said that led any of the other disciples in the upper room to say, oh, he's not speaking about me, he's speaking about so-and-so in particular, Judas. And it's a reminder to us of a very solemn truth, friends, that a person can give a profession of faith and that profession appears genuine among the people of God, but in the end, that person turns out to be a reprobate or one who is now beyond salvation. That is why the New Testament says, without explaining it all the time, that Christians fall from grace. I'm not saying that genuine Christians fall from grace, but those who are professors of Christ can fall from grace. In other words, they were never actually followers of Christ. Just listen to two of those texts. Matthew 7:22, "On that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name?" And what does He say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. This is solemn. This should cause us to, to do some soul searching. How about you know, 1 John 2.19? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all Uh, They all are not of us. In other words, it's clear that there can be people that are part of the group who eventually, over time, reveal their true colors. That what they professed isn't truly what they believe. So Judas would have professed to be a believer. In the eyes of the other disciples, he was just like one of them. But he wasn't one of the elect. He wasn't a true believer But in the eyes of the disciples, he was. And again, we can never presume upon the language of a profession that we've made five years ago, ten years ago, even 25 years ago. Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be Saved. There's a sense here, friends, that our salvation now is is the the evidence of that is seen by how we live, by the fruit that goes on in our heart, by the repentance that we experience daily and ongoing with Christ. That's why sometimes we want to be careful about, you know, a, a four year old child who. Praise a prayer, and you write that date in their Bible, and you say, See, back then you made a profession of Christ. Don't trust the written profession, trust what you see in the life being lived out now. And you've probably gone through seasons in your life where you kind of of come in and out of your kind of trust of of God, and the evidence is going to be the perseverance of your heart toward God. So, the is it I serves a purpose. It challenges every believer to consider his heart, to look for present evidence of growth, to look for that fruit of the gospel on display. And what about you? It is a sad reality to come across people who were once living as part of God's church who have now abandoned it. You probably know some of those people. At one point in time, you were shoulder to shoulder with them, maybe in ministry, maybe serving as teachers in a classroom or. Maybe you know, in a Bible study, and, and now they don't want anything to do with the things of God. And yet there was every evidence in that moment that they were genuine in their walk with God. The seeds of doubt set in, or the seeds of disobedience, or the sins, seeds of rebellion, they, they began to bear fruit. Or maybe life's trials were so hard that they, in their despair and disappointment, they didn't turn to God, but they turned to other things. And friends the reality is if that is true if those things happen that some of those people might be sitting near you in church today now don't look around <laughs> but let's just be honest about the fact that this is a consistent reality want to said one of the greatest mission fields is the church in America because our churches have become so anemic of the gospel and have replaced the truth of the gospel with so many other things, it becomes something other than the true church. So there's a need to be asking yourself the question. And if you're a follower of Christ, you want this question asked because you don't want those people that are sitting next to you to be fooled into thinking that they're a follower of Christ when they're not. Friends, a true follower of Christ will listen to him and say, is it I. They want to change. They want to grow. They want to be conformed to Him. So, panic, ignorance, and finally, deceit. Now here we're looking at Judas in particular. You can hear the chorus of responses to Jesus' statements. This, this chorus by the disciples saying, Is it I? Is it I? Surely it's not me. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And it stands to reason that Judas was one of those voices knowing full well what he was doing. That he not only betrayed Jesus in the garden and had betrayed him with the religious leaders already in the agreement that he made with them, but even sitting there around the table, he is speaking words of betrayal because they are a lie. Lying to the Savior of the world himself. Deceit. Now, friends you wonder whether or not Judas actually believed his words. You know, you can believe your own lies if you tell yourself those lies are true enough times. It's true in the world. Just tell a lie so many times it becomes truth. His conscience was seared so that he was no longer sensitive to the things of God. And friends, this is a solemn passage. It's terrifying to the extent that Judas could have repented at any time if he wanted to. He was fully, fully in control of the situation. He was not forced into the direction he had chosen. Yes, he had already met with the religious leaders, but he could have pulled out of that. There in the upper room, as Jesus talked about all the things that were going to happen and the presence of the Holy Spirit, Judas is still sitting there. He's listening could have stopped. He could have put the brakes on if he wanted to, but Judas reached the point where he was unable to repent anymore. His heart had been calloused even to Jesus's words, and every time Jesus speaks, it is a word that is is inviting repentance and restoration and forgiveness. If we remember that Mark's account is given to us primarily by listening to the testimony of Peter. And Peter says in his letter, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it's a reminder, without getting into the context of all that's going on there, that God's heart attitude is a patient, loving, reaching out, and that those who end up entering into eternity you know, apart from God do not go there simply because well, they just found themselves there. They go there because they determined to go there. Because the, the gospel was presented, the grace of God was present, it was there for them to, to come and to bow down and to repent, but they have chosen not to. So Jesus here is consistently giving opportunities for Judas to repent. One of you, one of the 12, will betray me. You just imagine silence, Judas sitting there thinking, what do I do? He's exposing it all. And then one, of, one who is dipping his bread into the dish with me. And Judas was likely just to the side of Jesus. Again and again, he's giving him opportunity to repent, but Judas presses on in his unbelief and his betrayal. Friends, it's worth us noting that no matter how steeped in sin you and I may be, Jesus longs and desires our repentance. You may be in total bondage to your sin. You may be hardened in your unbelief, and each offer of repentance each proclamation of the gospel is either an opportunity for restoration renewal or repentance or as a further nail in the coffin of your unbelief so this is important friends Judas' Judas's betrayal comes not by God somehow ushering Judas to betray him as if Judas had nothing, you know, no responsibility Oh, I, don't know. I guess I'm the one who's going to betray him no 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 that's not how it happens but by Christ appealing to Judas to repent. In other words, there's this appeal for repentance all along the way, but Judas, in his determination, is going to follow through with the plan that he has made. So Judas is fully responsible and accountable for his own actions. But get this, God is at work, even through Judas's behavior. Now friends, this is, this is hard sometimes for us to kind of comprehend. God is provident over preparations and the affairs of man, but he's also provident over sinful man. In particular, a man who is about to betray him. See, Judas is not an unwilling pawn in the, in the hand of God's providence. No, he willingly, deliberately, and sinfully pursued this path of betrayal. But God, because he has all things under control, is working his will in and through his unbelief. So we've seen um, that Jesus is providentially providing for the celebration Passover. A place has been determined and prepared. And Jesus is providentially working through man's sinfulness, through Judas' betrayal. But now we see that Jesus is providentially fulfilling His plan according to Scripture. All that is happening is according to Scripture. Do you get that? He says, verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. God is in control of all that. The Scripture that was breathed out many years ago is now being fulfilled. God is orchestrating His plan and might we say just the providential affairs of, of, of life, just ordering the world so that they can have a place to meet. He's working through sinful man, but he's also working his providence through scripture that has been breathed out many years before this. And just like the words in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told this in chapter uh, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as first import, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Jesus is provident over scripture. He is provident about the fulfillment of Scripture. So we're told the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. The words of Scripture are driving the the events of this text. And here, this this expression, Son of Man, is an Old Testament statement from the book of Daniel that really anticipates more a, a warrior, someone who is triumphant. But that is not who we see here, is it? We see a Son of Man, but we also see that the Son of Man has come to Die. And so Jesus is bridging these two pictures from the Old Testament. The son of man in Daniel. As well as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And he's saying here, this is the Lord of glory. And his triumph, his victory takes place at the cross. That's what... It's what Jesus had said, and Mark records it a little bit earlier in Mark's gospel, chapter 10 and verse 45. Here's what it says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus is bringing these two things together and saying, here is the beautiful picture of the Savior, this Deliverer. The the deliverance you're looking for is not, at this point in time, a, a, a physical kingdom deliverance. It is a spiritual deliverance that finds its triumph, its victory on the very cross itself. So God's divine plan does not excuse man's betrayal. Yes, it is God's plan that the Son of Man would die a sacrificial death, Judas is completely responsible for his own actions. And the scriptures are being fulfilled in the process of God's providence in all the affairs that are taking place. You see that. You see how Jesus is in complete control of all these events that are taking place in this text. So divine sovereignty does not excuse human responsibility. We've seen so far that Jesus providentially provides for a need. He providentially works through sinfulness. He providentially fulfills the scriptures. And so we can see that God's providence in our lives brings, first of all, comfort. When you are aware that he is in control of everything, past, present, and future, the ways you've been treated, the sins that you've you've done, the circumstances that you're in now, the troubles that you have with relationships now, and even what's going to happen in the future, that God is at work through all of those things. If we, if we just remind ourselves and have that as a backdrop, it gives us a place of comfort to say, okay, he's got it under control. But the fact that he's got it under control does not mean that I am relinquished of my responsibility. He still wants me, with that backdrop, to live my life, to do certain things in accordance with his will. So he comforts us. It it sustains us. It helps us then to to kind of get out of maybe that that ditch that we're in and to to kind of get up and and to realize not only is he in control, but he is in control in such a way that I can get up and I can keep moving. And I would say that the, the knowledge of his providence and the awareness of his providence also empowers us then to press on. The providence of God is a wonderful, wonderful truth about God and how he interacts with us. We go through dark times, difficult transitions. Or we have you know, J.D. and Thea leaving us. In the providence of God, it's a beautiful thing. On a human level, it's a sad thing. But God gives us strength to, to press on. And we say, God, we don't know what you have for us now. We don't know what you have for them for them now. But we trust you in the midst of it all. That you are a God who is providential, providentially working your plan through the affairs of man. And friends, it's a reminder to us to trust fully in him. And there's a number of verses that we could think of as we reflect on this. I mean, the obvious one would be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That means acknowledge his activity in the affairs of life and how he's doing all these things. And he'll direct your paths. Or another one, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. How does he care for you? Providentially. <laughs> he's always at work looking out for you. So just some, some concluding thoughts here. Just going to re- really be brief. There's four things. Just want to finish out with this. Okay, Number one. It's a reminder and um, uh, just helpful again to, to walk through this from this text. God is in complete control of your life, your entire life. He created you, He chose you, He is growing you. Past, present, and future. That's just a reality, friends, and we need to rest in it. Secondly, that being true, you are accountable for your actions. You might be going through some difficulty. Can't blame God. You have no right to. No one makes you choose a sinful path. Now, certainly others provoke you. Certainly other people sin against you. Certainly others may be bad examples who lead you astray. And if you're interacting with someone who's wrestling with this whole thing, don't diminish those things and say, you know what? You have the responsibility to do it. Understand the power of being provoked, and I think anyone here been provoked before, and you kind of lose a grip on what you should do, right? We understand that, but ultimately, when you lose a grip, you're responsible. But understand the power of that provocation is is real, and so we we work tenderly and carefully and compassionately with others who struggle with this because we struggle with this ourselves. But the scripture puts your thoughts and your behavior in your own hands. You are responsible for your actions and you are alone are accountable for your thoughts and your deeds. I have a pastor friend by the name of Ken Dockery. And um, I think I've mentioned him a while ago, but he was serving a church in Pennsylvania for about 10 years. And during that time, he developed a heart condition and in his early 30s, found himself uh, having open heart surgery and spending about six months at the Cleveland Clinic. And I realize that's, you know, that's Midwest and you don't know anything about that. But Cleveland Clinic is like the, the heart center, um, you know, hospital in that, in that region. And So for, for about six months, he was in a room uh, just being taken care of and, and, and recovering from this heart condition that he had. Ken would say that during those months, while his physical heart was healing and gaining strength, his spiritual heart was being transplanted. Because he would, he would get up every day and he would look out the window and he would see downtown Cleveland, which, by, by the way, friends, back then was nothing to look at. And God put a burden on his heart as he looked out over the city to plant a church in the heart of Cleveland. And today he's pastoring a church there in the heart of Cleveland, now friends, w- w- what is going on there? I'm saying, here, here's a guy who went through. How many of you want to go through heart surgery? Anyone here? He jo- you know, rejoice over it. But here, here he is, understanding that what he's going through is a physical issue, a problem that placed him in this hospital, out of, you know, nothing that he did to contribute to it. And there he is, looking out, and God is using that moment. To plant in him a burden for a place where he, God, wants a church planted. It all comes from understanding God's perspective. God's providence over the affairs to say, this is where God wanted me to be so that I could do this. We are responsible friends. We are accountable. And we need to have that perspective. Number three. In spite of our sinfulness, God is still at work in us accomplish well I put it the way it's written up there in spite of your sinfulness God is still at work in you to accomplish his plan and to appeal to your repentance he will accomplish his plan in spite of your sinfulness now I just think about parents anyone here ever parented incorrectly let's be honest all right your, your children are just now a lost cause is that right no God's still in control And he takes parents who are imperfect to accomplish his will in raising children to glorify him. And I would say, imperfect children have imperfect parents. (laughs) Right? And you can look back and say, I blew it! And the answer is, yeah, you probably did. And, And you can look back and say, even though I blew it, God was still at work. Now maybe you blew it so bad that you did set someone on a a course that's really bad. But listen, you can stop feeling sorry for yourself and go to God and say, "God, forgive me." And you can begin to seek to honor Him with your relationship now. And you know what? You just you trust Him. You trust that God is at work in spite of your sinfulness. It is not a lost cause. He is always seeking our repentance. He is poised for our restoration through forgiveness. And then finally, just reflecting on that last section, God's word will be fulfilled. There's a, <laughs> the world is passionately against it, scornfully against the word of God being fulfilled. But God is always working in accordance with his word. God will always do what he says he will do. Now, friends... We are living in a more recent culture that is angry, that is spitting out vile things. Maybe not at Target and at Walmart, but on Facebook and Instagram and on blog posts. I mean, it's it's getting nasty out there, isn't it? And isn't that discouraging on one level? And you're like, what is happening to our country, regardless of where you are politically? Be reminded that the United States is a great country, but it is not God's most favored nation. What God is concerned about is his kingdom, is his church. And if you are a child of his kingdom, if you're part of his church, he is concerned about you. He's concerned about how you interact in this world that is so polarized and so angry and so, you know, saying all these things to each other. How are you going to show up and be different and show the grace of Christ? It's called us to have our focus in a completely different place. It's so easy, friends, to get caught up in all that rather than to be caught up in the gospel and being a child of God who's being a light to the world. You're going to have a hard time being a light to the world on Facebook saying nasty things about someone who just quoted something. Now, I have strong opinions. I have strong beliefs. But my opinions and my beliefs don't mean anything. Christ's word means everything. And we've got to get back to that. And we've got to see why God has called us here. Yes, I love our country, but you know, there are other countries out there whose governments are like, you know, not so good and are corrupt. And in those countries, there are believers who are slogging it out every day, living for the glory of God. People are getting saved, and they're having to live their lives radically because the culture demands that. And maybe it's a wake-up call for us because we've been riding this wave of comfort And now we're shocked, but we need to remember God is completely in control, even when we're not comfortable, (laughs) even when it seems like the environment is changing, it's difficult. He is in control, and he is completely in control of your life, past, present, and future. And that's something to be thankful for. Lord, help us today. As we have reflected on this encounter, Lord, some of it just seems like just part of a story. And yet, Lord, we want to see in that story the the, the echoes of truth about who you are and what you do. And, Lord, we need to be reminded not just of things that are happening, but we need to be reminded of your very being and that you are a God who is all-powerful You are a God who is all-knowing. And you are a God who is completely, totally, and completely in control. And Lord, even as things happen to us, even as we sin ourselves, in your wisdom and providence, you are still at work accomplishing your plan. And that is evident to us through this text Your son is going to a cross and yet he's going to a cross through the sinful activity and behavior of people who stand responsible and accountable for their own actions. But you have it all completely in your hands because you are a great God, the creator of this world, the one whom we worship. And Lord, maybe today this will be an opportunity for those of us who are here to kind of step back and to be given some perspective, and to see you afresh for who you really are. But Lord, also may we be reminded that the reason that we have this, this ability now to understand these things comes as a result of what you are doing in this last stage of Mark. You're going to a cross, you're going to die there, and that death is a death that is a transaction, as we sang this morning. It is, it is a great exchange, Lord. It is, it is a transaction, Lord, of my sins now being, being shouldered by you. And then my life then being clothed by righteousness that is not my own, but belongs to you, Lord. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful reality. And Lord, now as we celebrate the Lord's table, May we be reminded of this gospel that has changed us, that's given us life, that's given us perspective, and that's given us a purpose to live in this world, but mostly, Lord, for you and for your kingdom. Help us now, we ask in your name. Amen.